0: Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. For decades, people have talked about the Brent Spence Bridge, but
1: folks, we're finally going to get it done.
2: Biden promotes infrastructure repairs and upgrades as funding flows from new climate laws.
3: This may be one of the most challenging and impactful series of storms. In the last five years.
2: West braces for another round of major storms. Plus, Republican dysfunction in U.S. House, a bad omen for climate policy. All of those bad omens
0: and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman.
2: And I'm Desi Doyan.
0: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. House Republicans now are on the verge of becoming a total clown show if they're not careful. Becoming... Oh, Sean Hannity, you be you. Happy New Year. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, a whole bunch of stuff happened while we were out (laughs) over the holidays. And a whole bunch of stuff has happened since we've come back. And all you have to do is cover it all In less than six
2: minutes (laughs) Good luck to me Indeed As we go to air The spectacle of climate science Denying far-right Republicans Using their new U.S. House majority To monkey-wrench the selection Of the Speaker of the House Is a harbinger of congressional chaos To come over the next two years Who could have guessed it? House Republicans have pledged To expand fossil fuel extraction And slash clean energy funding And they will also be in control Of funding the government And approving emergency funding for extreme weather disasters. Well,
0: they're going to have a hard time causing too much trouble because the Democrats still control the White House and the Senate, right?
2: Yes, so that will make it harder for them to pass their anti-environment agenda.
0: Until they start including it in must-pass bills but we'll cross that bridge if and when we get there.
2: A state of emergency in California amid a punishing series of major storms that are pummeling the drought-stricken western U.S., causing extreme flooding, mudslides, and power outages. But hydrology experts say the string of atmospheric rivers is still not enough to fill major reservoirs that have fallen to record lows or to pull California and other states out of historic drought. The dramatic swings from historically dry to extreme, Extremely wet conditions are in line with climate scientists' predictions. Those
0: hydrologists are such gloomy gusses.
2: Meanwhile, while we were out, an arctic blast brought extreme cold to most of the U.S. An historic blizzard killed more than 50 people, most of them in upstate New York, and triggered an airline industry meltdown. Beleaguered Jackson, Mississippi got yet another boil water notice as the deep freeze crippled the city's water supply again. The widespread power and water Water outages again exposed how the nation's infrastructure is not ready for climate change intensified extreme weather. A freakish heat wave in Europe over New Year's shattered temperature records in some areas by 20 to 30 degrees. At least eight countries hit new all-time record temperatures for the month of January. Switzerland and Poland pushed an unthinkable 66 degrees Fahrenheit at 4 o'clock in the morning in winter.
0: 66 degrees. Yes. In January.
2: In the morning, before dawn. However, the record warmth has slashed demand for natural gas heating. Here in the U.S., the U.S. Postal Service increased its purchase of all-electric delivery trucks and will electrify 75% of its fleet by 2026, creating one of the largest electric fleets in the nation. Well, we're getting there. And German luxury automaker Audi announced it is phasing out manufacturing of gasoline cars and converting all of its factories to produce EVs. Really? The Biden EPA enacted tougher pollution rules for trucks, vans, and buses for the first time in decades to cut down on toxic diesel air pollution. The U.S. Transportation Department allocated another $2 billion to repair critical interstate bridges. President Biden was in Kentucky on Wednesday to announce that a decrepit bridge, a vital commerce corridor in the Midwest, will finally get repaired thanks to federal infrastructure investment dollars now flowing to states from the bipartisan infrastructure law.
1: We can work together. We can get things done. We can move the nation
0: forward. Well, at least when Democrats have majorities in both houses of Congress, we'll see how it goes this year.
2: And finally, new incentives from Biden and the Democrats' landmark climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed with zero Republican votes. Mm -hmm. Those incentives are now in effect, offering homeowners and businesses numerous ways to access billions of dollars in funding, grants and other mechanisms to go green and upgrade, boost energy efficiency and save money on water and energy.
0: For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Mastodons at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. And I
1: remember
4: what it is to be
0: so green. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate.
1: From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch broadcasting this week from Washington, D.C.
4: Even when religion-related extremism does not lead to violence, it is still used as a political wedge issue, cynically leading people to justify the subordination of women, the stigmatization of LGBT people, racism, Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. This ought to concern deeply those of us who care about the future of religion and the future of faith. We need to call this what it is, a great, failure of religion.
1: That TED Talk by Rabbi Sharon Brous titled Reclaiming Religion has been viewed by 1.4 million people and translated into 23 languages. Newsweek and Daily Beast named her the most influential rabbi in America. The founder and senior rabbi of the IKAR Jewish community in Los Angeles, Rabbi Brous will be with us today to share some of her thoughts about the spiritual and social challenges and opportunities she sees in this new year. Facing
5: this unprecedented assault on history, professional historians are stepping up to try to steer the national conversation back to reality. The best historians are drawing on the historical literature and taking the long view to try to dismantle some of
1: the falsehoods that we find in the public square. Myth America. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. This book is rich with essays from a diverse group of respected contributors, including editors and Princeton professors Kevin M. Cruz and Julian Zelizer. With so much of our culture and politics influenced heavily by fictions of an American past that never was, Myth America is essential reading for an understanding of the moment we're living in and guidance for finding our way back to a more reality-based understanding of ourselves as a nation. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms every week i am in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation please subscribe to it today state of belief radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners if you've made a donation thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them if you haven't pitched in yet information on how you can help Keep This Show on the Air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Rabbi Sharon Brous is a powerful speaker, an effective organizer, and an inspiring faith leader the founder of the IKAR Jewish Community in Los Angeles. She serves as senior rabbi and brings a prophetic voice to issues of justice and community building like few others can. So I'm very happy to be spending time with her in these first days of the new year. Rabbi Sharon Brous, thank you so much for joining us on State of Belief Radio.
4: I'm so happy to be with you this morning.
1: <laughs> Tell us, it's 2023, what are you hopeful for mm.
4: I actually think some of the tumult that we're seeing in Washington right now is a reflection um, on ha- how much the last many years really haven't worked for uh, in America and in a way it's a, it's it's more fully exposing the wounds and I think part of what's been breaking us as a country is that for centuries we've been hiding the wounds and pretending, that they aren't there and going on with business as usual. And now in this moment, after everything that we've experienced collectively through the Trump administration, through COVID pandemic, and now with all these extreme weather events and everything that's going on with the war in Ukraine and all of the chaos and catastrophe and tumult that's happening um, in America and beyond, we're realizing that we actually, it actually is doing damage to the system so much so that at some point the system stops functioning. And that is very hopeful because that's the moment when we begin to transform ourselves into what could be. And I, I mean, I've always felt like we're living through this extended period of laying to rest the world that was and birthing into reality the world that could be. And it seems like the more dysfunction um, that we're witnessing and experiencing, the the closer we can come to being honest about what needs to be laid to rest and what's possible when we start to build anew.
1: Tell me specifically about... The community that you're leading out in Los Angeles uh, and and some of what you're working on and what your community is feeling and and um, and your priorities for the year.
4: Uh, the community that I lead is called Icar. We started this community in 2004 and. Um, I don't know if you remember 2004, but we thought things couldn't get much worse, <laughs> mm. um, You know, mm. given what we were seeing, uh, an increase in, in violence in extremism, in violent religious extremism, both in this country and around the world, um, a, re- a, a kind of growing awareness of the climate catastrophe, um, a growing sense of the isola- isolation and atomization um, in the population here in the US, um, we felt that in it, I, I really w- was searching for a religious community that in a time of so, of so much extremism, when religion on the public stage represented values that were so contrary to what I understand our sacred texts to be teaching us, I expected religious institutions to be a powerful counter testimony to that, uh, to that kind of regressive, violent extremism. And it was exactly at that time that many of our institutions, I think, really failed to offer a voice of, of moral clarity, and and maybe had forgotten what the purpose of, of faith communities really, uh, really is, and what the job of a faith leader is, to you know, to really take our sacred texts and traditions, and imagine with the people what a world of love and justice could look like. And, and I, I really was searching for a place that could be a home of, of, of spirit, of joy, of hope, of love, a place where we could dance and sing and cry together and also offer a response to some of the most confounding and challenging moral questions of our time. And so we ended up building Ecard to sort of sit in that space. And I also realized, Paul, and I'm sure you've seen this in your, you know, in your own work too, that there was this really dominant trend in. Jewish life in America right at the turn of the um, of the millennium about uh, it was a trend of disaffection and disengagement. So many young people not going to synagogue anymore and almost a kind of communal obsession with what's happening and how are we gonna save the next generation and everybody who's going to synagogue is over 70 and what does that mean? And I realized that it wasn't just the Jews that were struggling this way, but that oh, all of our faith no. communities, <laughs> yeah. we're struggling with the same questions. And so what if we actually reconceived of our faith communities and shared um, sacred spaces as places where we could talk about the most challenging moral questions Mm. of the day. And we could do it in a way where we're not afraid that we're gonna lose a donor because we're gonna say something that somebody might find inappropriate, but because it's actually the way that our tradition demands that we speak in these times of moral crisis. And so the community was really built um, at the you know at that intersection at the the one trend of disaffection disconnection right. young people not being interested and world on fire and what we were trying to identify was like what can we do to reignite the imagination of a a generation of people who feel totally disconnected um, from institutional religious life, but are spiritually hungry, are morally awake and alive, are desperate for community and wanna sing together and wanna pray together and wanna open our hearts and change our world. So that was the goal and it's been almost 20 years and the community has really developed a muscle over these 20 years To um, to to respond to and to address some of these great challenges as they've continued to unfold. So, you know, when the you know 2016 election happened, the community was ready. I mean, we were we -hmm. were already deeply enmeshed in the in in the work, and we had you know really invested a lot in building multi faith partnerships and and others so that we could stand together. And so, I think what started to unfold during those years of crisis was. Um, a, a kind of even deeper sense of connection to our tradition, to our community. Um, in fact, I know we'll talk a little bit about anti-Semitism, this, you know, in this conversation. But the more that Jews have been targeted in Trump's America and post-Trump's America the more deeply we felt connected, not only to our Jewish community, but to the broader community where there were many vulnerable minority communities that were being uh, uh, you know, attacked and on the front line and made to feel even more vulnerable. And so that this era has kind of been marked by um, a renewed commitment to imagining a different kind of Jewish community and a different, ki- a different kind of faith community and a different kind of society, and then rededicating ourselves to realizing that vision together.
1: What is the state of anti-Semitism right now as you're seeing it and how you would like the broader community, Jewish and non-Jewish alike, to to, uh, imagine how that feels and then also to get engaged to counteract it?
4: Yeah, first of all, thank you for asking the question. Um, I think this is an era of awakening in so many ways. It's been certainly an era of awakening in the racial justice space, and really trying to understand how anti-black racism has permeated every aspect of life in America, every system, every um, you know, every individual and every collective. And I. I, um, and all other kinds of biases that we hold in our, um, you know, in, in our broader culture. And I think one of the least interrogated racisms in America is anti-Semitism. And so I deeply appreciate you asking. Um, I would say that there's been a turning point in the way that anti-Semitism has functioned in America in 20 in 2017. So over the last several years, we've seen a kind of transformation, and it's all happening so quickly that many people don't understand it, even Jews. So we often are like, what is going on? So Charlottesville, 2017, these neo-Nazis are marching to protest a Robert E. Lee statue being taken down and they're chanting, Jews will not replace us. And, And I think most people in America, including most Jews are like, what do the Jews have to do with your Robert E. Lee statue? Like, what are you even talking about? Why are you surrounding a synagogue and threatening to burn down a synagogue. What does our what does this Jewish community of Charlottesville have to do with your anti-black racism? And only through investigation and interrogation do we understand what's actually going on, which is, as Eric Ward and others have been unfolding for us and 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 really sharing with us over the course of the last many years, the way that anti that that anti-Semitism is the beating heart of white supremacy and white nationalism in America. The way that this ideology, this, this European style anti-Semitic ideology has been at the heart of, of, of the movement uh, toward, toward building a, you know, a, a white only America. It's very much at the heart of the lie of, of the white genocide. And so what, is it, what does it have to do with it? I mean, part of it is rooted as we've learned in the, the disbelief around black excellence. This, I mean, at the heart of mm. anti-black racism, the, the belief among many of these white nationalists that that black people can't achieve excellence on their own. So it must be that the Jews are the puppet masters who are manipulating movements for social justice, movements for racial justice in America. You remember the you know the lie that Soros was responsible for the caravan of brown people that were going to invade America, which ultimately led you know, you know a, a person, an unhinged person to go into the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh and, and murder a bunch of Jews who were at worship on Shabbat morning. So the idea is that Jews are the master manipulators who control the media, who control government, who control the banks. And each of these tropes, you know, is so dangerous. They're part of this very dangerous conspiracy theory that build a kind of composite picture that jews are a nefarious force within our society that operate as a kind of fifth column that either has or strives for world domination a- and the rest of america are sort of the suckers that are going to be you know that are going to be victimized by the mm. the plot of the jews Now, this is, as I said, a very, this is not a new idea. This is a very old idea. It's a very old European form of anti-Semitism. But now that anti-Semitism is what's at the heart of the anti-Semitism that's emerging in America. And what I think we're like, what I really want people to understand is how this is not only dangerous for Jews. This is a danger for everybody, because when anti-Semitism thrives, In a society, racism thrives. And when anti-Semitic language is proliferating in a culture, nobody is safe. When violence against Jews becomes normalized as it has, and you've seen, I'm sure, all these reports of, you know, hate crimes in Los Angeles, hate crimes in America, the kind of spiking of hate crimes and the religious group that's targeted you know, by far, in a way, number one on that list is always the Jews, right? they are violent attacks on the Jews. When violence against Jews becomes normalized, there's an increase in violence generally in a culture, and especially against other minority communities. And and anti-Semitic lies, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories don't only endanger us. They actually endanger democracy. And so Mm. part of what I want people to understand is that this is a anti Semitism has always been used as a wedge issue to kind of break apart those who would resist tyranny. And it's exactly the playbook that we've seen in America over the last six or seven years that as there's a movement that has emerged to respond to a move toward autocracy and tyranny, it's the anti Semitic lie that kind of wedges into those movements in order to break people apart so that they can't stand on the stage together so that they can't fight back together because we're so much weaker when we are, when we're functioning in these kind of disparate and broken and fragmented right. ways. And right. we're so much more powerful when we can actually stand together.
1: Right. So, so this is, I mean, this is the be- beginning of a much longer and I hope ongoing conversation with you about anti-Semitism and you know, I, but in brief, what, what, you know, you talk about standing together and that's what I'm like, what are the ways that we can stand together right now? And really just say, first of all, I, is it when we hear the trope, when we hear the lies, we just, we counteract it. We say something. It's like, see, hear something, say something, see something, yeah. say something. That's a start being intentional, I think, about reaching out to people, um, your Jewish friends, your Jewish neighbors, and and saying, how are you? What can I do? I, I'm, I'm, I'm follow, trying to follow the lead of what I've heard. You can continue the list for me, um, but I just want to make sure people feel empowered because I think also these kind of movements, you feel like, oh, well, there's nothing I can do. You know, these are, you know, and, and I actually think there's a role for everybody.
4: Well, I think, th- again, thank you for asking. It's not just that we think that we're powerless to do anything about it. I think we don't understand it. Because, the, mm. because anti-Semitism functions so differently from other forms of racism, So, and many people have pointed this out, that many forms of racism are, feel like shooting down, and anti-Semitism feels like it's shooting up, because you're only attacking the people who have all the power, who have all the money, who have all the control. And even thinking that way... Is buying into an anti-Semitic trope. Uh
2: And I think Uh a lot of
4: people don't even understand. So people will say, like, you know, we've had met many people, you know, regular people to celebrities who will say things like, Oh, I want to have, you know, I want to be have money like the Jews have money. And they think it's actually a compliment, right? It's not a compliment because what it's doing is it's feeding into a lie, a conspiratorial lie that says that Jews control the banks. If Jews control money and the banks, then your poverty, your suffering, y- your lacking is at the hands of this force, this evil, right. eternal, demonic force that is my family, right? And yeah, so right. part of what I think we have to do is exactly as you said, when we hear these things, to call them out and to say something yeah. and say, hold on, you're playing into a white nationalist trope right now. I don't know if you mean to be. Some people do mean to be. White nationalists certainly mean to be. But you hear anti-Semitic tropes, from racial justice leaders, right? I mean, people Uh who are supposed to be on the other side of this. Also, I think often inadvertently reiterate the very same tropes that are at the heart of the anti-Semitic lie, which fundamentally harm all people who are in in minority communities, including people of color, including any any community that might be vulnerable to, to the kind of white supremacist and white nationalist ideal. And so I think the first thing is, We have to learn about it. We have to. The whole idea from, you know, of of learning to become an anti racist is, is learning how to actively interrogate the way that we engage in this country with our most basic assumptions, asking those powerful questions, going through the painful work of saying, in what ways have I? Internalize some of these biases against, for example, against black people, and then how, what do I need to do to reckon with it, and then to eradicate it, to build a different a different way of being, and that's absolutely critical work that we have to be doing with all of our biases, including mm. with the bias against Jews, which manifests as you know a, a, as a form of kind of conspiracy and and lie lies against against Jews. So the first thing is I think doing the work, educating ourselves, interrogating ourselves calling it out when we hear it right and I might one I, I was talking the other day to a friend who's in law school and she was sitting in the law library and around the corner from her but it, like at another little gathering where a bunch of students were sitting she heard a student say you know all I know is I'm gonna jew them down until I get the best possible price she's like we're in a law this is a law school student in 2022 you know it's a couple weeks ago saying we're gonna jew them down and and by the way, He doesn't think he's being anti-Semitic. He thinks he's getting a good deal, right? He thinks, I admire the Jews, that they always get the best price. It's dangerous for all of us. And so I think it's about, and she had to get up all her courage and walk over and say, you know that people can hear you when you talk. You should think a little bit more about what you're saying. So I think that that's upon all of us. And the last thing I'll say about this, Paul, is Shortly after the election in 2016, we had a gathering at the Islamic Center in Southern California here. And it was a beautiful, powerful, multi-faith gathering of clergy leaders in the city. And luckily, as I said, we've spent many years building these relationships. A lot of us have been in the trenches together. And it was a room that was full, it was multi-faith, but it was heavily Latino, Latino clergy in uh, LA. And one of the Muslim leaders from the mosque stood up and said, I am speaking right now to the Latino community of Los Angeles. And I tell you that this will be a safe place for you, that if they come after you, you know that we will embrace you with arms of love and understanding. And I could not, I mean, it was an astonishing moment for me because here's the Muslim community, which was, you know, I mean, on the front line of Trump's hatred and cruelty, and I mean, really targeted community that was already opening their eyes to the Latino community, which was, they were saying, you're even closer to the front line than we are. And so And modeling what it means to reach out with embrace and to say, we all feel vulnerable right now. And when we feel vulnerable, our instinct is to entrench, right? I want to go back. I want to hide in my own Jewish corner when Jews are attacked, but I'm not going to. I'm gonna say from my own vulnerability, I will attach myself to other people, stand in solidarity with other people who similarly feel that their communities are under attack right now. And, and together we're gonna to, to continue to invest in building a coalition that will manifest a society of love and justice because none of us can do it alone. The only way that that will happen is we do it together.
1: Uh, I love that. Thank you so much for that. All, all of that wisdom, you know, challenge, bracing, but also, you know, it, it, this is what we need. This is what we need right now. So thank you so much for all of that. And I really appreciate it. Rabbi Sharon Brous is founder and senior rabbi at IKAR Jewish Community in Los Angeles, California. She is a senior fellow at Auburn Seminary. Sharon, I really appreciate you being here to help us think about ways to move into this new year together. Thanks for coming back on State of Belief Radio.
4: Thank you. We should do this more often. It's a joy.
1: We need to take another break, but coming up next, we'll take on Myth America with historian Julian Zelizer. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website, you'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of
0: Belief Radio,
1: made for such a time as this.
0: State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network.
6: 911. What's your emergency?
1: America's healthcare system is broken and people are dying.
6: Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack. What policy solutions could be introduced that would most benefit freelancers? How would Medicare for All improve the lives of freelancers living in America? To find out, we spoke to Rafael Espinal and Jonathan Gray of the New York-based Freelancers Union. Raphael, a former New York State Assemblyman and a former New York City Councilman, is Executive Director, and Jonathan is our Member Benefits Manager. Welcome back to Code WAC, Raphael and Jonathan. How do you think Medicare for All would improve the lives of freelancers living in America?
0: Well, first and foremost, it would remove the anxiety of, of not having health care coverage. A lot of freelancers for Go Health care coverage because of the cost. And we wouldn't want to see any worker be in a situation in which they're stuck with thousands of dollars of medical debt simply because they couldn't afford to pay for health care insurance. So I would say that that's, that's the big one, and, and that's why it's important for us. And that's why, as an organization, we've always focused on health care. And from creating a very affordable health insurance plan to educating our members about the plans that exist out there now and, and doing the work and proposing to our members what we think is the best plans available to them, we strongly stand behind the idea of every American having access to affordable care.
6: the full Code Whack story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Whack wherever you find your podcast. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, Stay healthy.
0: Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear.
2: Leanne Foster, international vice president of the United Steelworkers, North America's largest industrial union, and she is in the USW's paper sector. We are talking about Making and converting paper safely programs that she leads. Talk to us about the U.S. members who even receive training, how to help advocate for their peers, help connect them with community resources and intervene with management when needed.
3: We haven't been able to achieve this in the paper sector yet, but in, in some of our other sectors and definitely in Canada, they have put a program in place where, you know, at, at different companies, people are trained to be able to to facilitate resources for survivors when they step up and say, Hey, this is happening to me. If you're in work in a really big facility, you may not even know who the HR person is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'd be sure. really comfortable maybe in talking to a union brother or union sister about it. And, you know, um, I've seen some places where they even have, after they go through the training, they have a special tick sticker on their hard hat. So um, people know that's the person that I can talk to about this issue And in one situation that I know of, it's not just about that issue. It's also also if you're experiencing um, any kind of depression or anxiety or mental health issues, um, there's a person there that can help facilitate and push, you know, make sure that you get the right resources. We do a lot of work in the union in negotiating employee assistance programs, but sometimes our members don't even know that those exist. So if we have someone in the workplace, Um, a team in the workplace that knows about those issues and can steer people in the right direction we can change so many lives and remove the stigma from both, you know, uh, intimate partner violence and mental health issues. I am so impressed about how
2: comprehensive and how thorough these initiatives are in the paper sector and other sectors, and they trying to bring more to the paper sector with regard to people who are victims of domestic violence. It's it's beyond impressive. I mean, it's almost mm-hmm. like you haven't left one T not crossed
3: and one I not dotted. Everything is there
0: again. That's Leslie Marshall. Every- Every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network.
1: Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Paul Rauschenbusch. If there's one thing that's become clear in the conflict-laden years of recent American history, it's that ignorance is easy to exploit. And as easy as facts are to access in this Internet age, lies are even easier. That's why the book my next guest edited and contributed to is so timely. Myth America, Historians Take On the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, was published on January 3rd, and I'm happy to have Dr. Julian Zelizer here with us on State of Belief Radio. Julian, welcome. Great to be with you. All right. So let's get right to it and talk about your new book, Myth America, which, you know, the moment I said it out loud, I was like, okay, that's kind of funny, Uh, but it is not a funny topic. So Talk to me. You have written some, you know, almost 25 books, something like that. I mean, amazing amount of uh, production. Why this book? Why now?
5: Well, uh, we're trying to accomplish two things. uh, My co-editor, Kevin Cruz and myself. Uh, The first is uh, responding to a feeling that in the last five, 10 years, um, the number of myths that you hear about American history, meaning arguments about the past that are often in the media, that are just fundamentally disconnected from what we know, uh, kind of basic stuff that you learn in, in most college classrooms, had really become extreme. And it matters in terms of how people understand history. It matters often in political debates, uh, both about the classroom and other policy issues. So. We wanted to try to set the record straight to some extent and invite some of the country's best historians who write well, who are easy to understand, to kind of bring together everything they have learned and studied on a subject and to set the record straight so that we can have a proper conversation and a proper debate. And the second is, you know, there's this disconnect between the university and the public that keeps getting worse. Um, There's almost a level of hostility. And we just wanted to showcase some really bright historians writing about everything from U.S. foreign policy uh, to the great society um, and, and show how good uh, this kind of work can be um, and how helpful it can be to really getting into more intelligent conversations about American history.
1: It is a really incredible group of historians. I And obviously, you are not going to get into the business of ranking historians, but are there like a top five myths that you said that, that were on the immediate list? By the way, we should mention that um, Professor Cruz is is the co-editor of this book, and he's been on this show and, and is a wonderful fellow. Um, are there top, top five myths that you just felt like, okay, when we were thinking about this book, this is part of the reason we want it. We wanted to address these. What 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 come to mind immediately?
5: Well, a few. I mean, one would have been uh, this idea that government is never very effective. And often you hear uh, pundits and reporters talking that the New Deal was a failure. It didn't really help until we got into World War II to get us out of the Depression. The Great Society was this catastrophic failure that did the opposite of what was intended. And we have two essays on those subjects. And um, it was right from the start one of our hopes to try to show that you can have a debate about if government is good and when it's good and bad, uh, but these were incredibly effective programs that achieved their goals, and and that was important. The second is to show in different ways the way in which race has really been inscribed in American politics uh, and racism, and how long the struggle has been uh, to undo the impact in American institutions and the different kind of protests that have taken form uh, over the years, which often don't fall into the neat categories you hear about, kind of the good civil rights protests versus the more radical uh, protests. And, and we have many essays um, that that deal with that. Um, I'd say uh, a third, um, which was uh, really, it wasn't on our agenda at first, but it came out of it. There's a great essay on Native American history and the myth of the vanishing uh, Indian, as as it was once titled. And uh, just to kind of counteract the idea that this has not been a very essential part of American culture throughout really the 20th and 21st century. Um, And taking on that myth was important. Our first essay was a myth that we always thought about, the myth of American exceptionalism, meaning the idea that America is totally different from comparable countries and that we kind of sit on a hill and don't have the same kinds of problems and issues of, of other countries. It's just, it's not accurate. And there's been generations of scholars trying to move us away from that conversation. And a historian named David Bell wrote a really powerful essay. He's a French historian, um, a historian of France, but he wrote an incredibly powerful um, argument about that. And then finally, uh, we did think early on about some of the myths you hear about feminism very often in the conservative media, that feminism was antithetical to family values, that it was opposed to the family And one of our historians wrote a pretty direct, hard hitting essay looking at feminism in the 70s and 80s, especially, and showing how pro-family much of the feminist platform was looking for more support for child, for raising children and for parenting. And so those are just a few. Um, And I think uh, our authors did a
1: good job taking them on. Yeah, well, it's really needed because you see, these are all, everything that you mentioned, of course, would is is under the um, is now easily dismissed as oh, woke or or whatever is the easily dismissed thing or title. And And it's and it's become a battleground for what even what universities, especially public universities, can teach. You know, I mean, I, that that as a historian must chill you to the bone. I, to me, as an American, that is very chilling. That that we can't actually teach history because we're we're almost indebted to these myths of what is like not indebted, but we're like um, chained to these myths that people have a vested interest in sustaining. I mean, t- talk to me about as someone who kind of it lives and breathes the academy
5: yeah look it's very frustrating um some of the book we often joke uh kevin and myself and and other authors uh, these are really uh, good compelling essays but some of the findings are not totally earth-shattering if you work in the profession or if you take classes at a, a college level and and Uh, Coming back to this concept that now has so much power of being too woke um, and it's had a direct influence. You have states that are literally legislating uh, things you can't teach in the classroom involving the impact of race in American life. And it's not uh, some radical idea that racism, the impact of slavery, even after slavery was over, has been pretty fundamental in how American politics and society works it's frustrating to see these debates where it's characterized as some extremist view that left-wing historians are trying to teach the kids. This is the reality of American history. And um, what's dangerous, I mean, it was already frustrating when it was just a debate, uh, but the way it's now moving really directly in states like Florida and Texas into what's going to happen in the classroom is it's just terrible. And again, You know, you can have all sorts of intelligent and constructive debates with students about how did race play in, where was racism checked, whatever the debate is. But to somehow argue this is uh, a really far out idea uh, to emphasize its perpetual impact really, really uh, doesn't sit well, I think, um, with a lot of historians.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things I. I know that you, you know, we, we we talked about this, that you don't directly go into like the myth of the Christian nation, but I, I am curious how, you know, that's something we talk about a lot as we have this rise of Christian nationalism and the the rise of people who are insistent that not only is this, was this country founded by Christians for Christians, but it's, it remains important that it become being be, be, uh, understood as a Christian nation and that when we veer from our Christian nationdom we are betraying God and then we lose our exceptionalism <laughs> i mean it's really a trap and it's um so for for me as someone who you know as a baptist pastor as someone who feels very indebted to my faith as well as to my country i find the the you know the Baptist tradition was specifically to say we don't want a national religion because it's going to hurt us. And so I find it very ironic and frustrating that I co- we're coming up against this Christian nationalism rooted in this idea that we are we are meant to be a Christian, we're founded as a Christian nation and meant to be a Christian nation. I you, you didn't deal with that directly, but that has to be kind of adjacent to kind of the, the, what you're talking about here.
5: No, absolutely. I'd start by saying there were many myths that we don't cover. Oh, sure. Yeah. That is not a
1: critique. Yeah. (laughs) No, no. And even like
5: we thought, like just in thinking of the book, obviously, there's this very vigorous and robust debate about the 1619 project. And and my co-editor wrote an essay in that. And in the end, we decided just we weren't going to put that front and center because there's so much out there. And so we picked other issues. That said, no, I think you're right. And you can even look in the book. We have a couple chapters on the history of immigration and really how central this has been to the fabric of the nation. And we have a great essay about the border um, that looks at the border, not as a place of perpetual danger and violence, but of true cultural ethnic uh, social integration of vibrant commerce and community, really uh, a history of the border. That's totally at odds with what you know. I
1: love that. That is so great about like, it's actually the influx of, of vibrancy of, of talent, I, I'm excited for this book. I am worried though that people unfortunately get their information from the internet, from social media. They you know, so what I want you to do is promise me right now that you're gonna become a TikTok star. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My He's laughing. laughing. Yeah. He's laughing,
1: but I'm not laughing. I mean, like, how do we get these things? I mean, how do we, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Like we need the, the, the academy has to speak into the nation more. And I just don't know how that works. You know, books are popular but not everyone is getting their information this way. So I, I'm obviously I'm, I'm joking. This is an impossible assignment, but I do think I worry that the font of misinformation and disinformation is so strong that we're, we're, we're having a little bit, we're, we're in a whirlpool uh, and we're trying to figure out like, what's the way to counteract it?
5: Yeah, no, I mean, it's not a joke at all. It's actually a great question. And, uh, it, it's funny that instinctively you don't think of TikTok as a place to do it, but the fact is that's one path where uh, there's a lot of influence, actually, um, in terms yeah. of even books and, and ideas and how you get it out there. Look, all the authors in our book, we chose not just smart historians who are good writers, but people, people who are called public-facing, meaning uh, many of them were on Twitter or they are on TV, such as myself or radio. They're people who are constantly trying to be part of the conversation, even given the echo chamber obstacles that you're talking about. Um, And so their work will continue after this book is done. I think uh, we both believe this is an important role for the academics who want to do this. Um, But I think one question is who's willing to do it and all of us are willing to do it and to write in ways that are accessible. But the second question or part of that's a good one. How do you do that? So look, my normal thing is to go on TV or radio shows or podcasts, and I still will do that. Um, But there's this whole other world for the next generation, for younger generations that uh, we need to look at because, uh, look, people our age, um, I think it's going to be hard to totally change their ways and views, not just because of who they are, but because of how they get their information. But younger
3: people are open to learning I would love to talk about a
1: couple other books that you've been working on. Uh, the first one I, wa- I would love to just mention, which if people don't know about it, they need to know it, is that you wrote a book about Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel fairly recently in the next in the last year or so, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and you know we're we're coming up on MLK weekend. Rabbi Heschel was such an important figure in American religious history, especially as an example. I think he's like he and King are almost the archetype of interfaith cooperation and, and working together for a goal. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that book, how it came about, and, then, and what you feel like you learned from it that, that might be really important for our audience to hear today.
5: Yeah, I mean, it was a great uh, project to work on. It was for the Jewish Live series of Yale University Press. And um, and he, for those who don't know, is a theologian at the Jewish Theological Seminary, an immigrant uh, from Poland, who in the 60s becomes this big activist on many issues, civil rights, Soviet Jewry, uh, the anti-war movement. He becomes a very recognizable anti-war figure with a group of other religious uh, people and For me, it was great. I come from a family of rabbis. Uh, My father's a rabbi. My grandfather's a rabbi. They were all part of the conservative movement. And Heschel, though he came from Orthodox background, taught in the seminary um, where the rabbis were trained. I learned two things that were really uh, important for me. Uh, One, uh, three. One was what you were talking about earlier, that Christian nationalism also kind of insists on a particular Uh, idea of religion uh, very often, and and how we should think of religion in public life. And he was part of a pretty progressive generation that saw a natural connection between theology, between practice, and ultimately uh, doing well and doing good in the lived world, uh, and translating those ideas uh, to the social justice uh, issues of our time. And I think that's an important strand of religiosity, that since the 70s has really lost a lot of attention because of the religious right and the moral majority are such big players on the public stage. Second, he was part of a really interesting era that you know about uh, in the 40s, 50s and 60s with these writers who are writing about pretty esoteric and very theological questions about the relationship of humans and God uh, and concepts of the divine that were actually being published by big presses. They were being covered by magazines like Time and Newsweek. And, and I think that world also has become uh, lost. They weren't political. They were asking these huge questions um, about spirituality and piety that I feel often today uh, don't don't have much space. And finally... Just again, it's a different way to understand religion in in American life, not as just constricting uh, or not as one vision that we always have and have to protect, uh, but of a kind of flourishing, experimental, dynamic world that he was part of, Heschel, um, constantly looking for those points of connection between the sacred and the secular. Uh, And it was really
1: important in post-World War II America, um, and I wanted to bring that back. It's an e- extraordinary. And actually, I, I think that what, you know, this, <laughs> this is going to sound um, shallow, and it is, uh, but the, the, the great thing about the Jewish Lives series is that they are readable. I mean, like they're, you know, they're not, you know, you could write, you know, 800 page book about Heschel. These are not those books. You know, I mean, you know, there was one written about my my great grandfather by Jeffrey Rosen. They're concise. I I encourage people to check out that series and especially your book. And then I do (laughs) as we're taping this show. I mean, there's something crazy going on in Congress. And because you wrote a book called Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich and the Rise of the New Republican Party, I can't resist asking you what you're thinking. What's your take on what's happening and what it means for the Republican Party and and what it means for America going forward? I think it's one of these things that's increasingly predictable, meaning what you've seen
5: since the 80s is much of the Republican Party has really radicalized. And each generation becomes more radical in terms of the tactics that Republicans are willing to use in terms of being less concerned about issues like governing uh, or even the health of our institutions and almost a purely partisan mentality. And uh, when you have a group like that, when you have a party like that, it becomes very hard to govern because in the end, and this is what McCarthy is seeing and we're all watching, Uh, the concern about governing isn't that urgent. So uh, the Republicans, whether they're the Freedom Caucus Republicans or now this new generation, even more extreme of Trumpian Republicans, they'll wait this out. They don't mind causing chaos. They'll cause more of it once the speaker is collected because they don't feel a sense of urgency in establishing order. It's just not a priority as it is I would argue still for many Democrats, despite all their divisions, it's fundamentally different. And so it becomes harder to manage a caucus like that. They don't care about appeals of what looks good or what looks bad, uh, nor do they care about appeals of is this dangerous ultimately? For making decisions. And I think um, that's what he's confronting at this point. Even if you give them everything they want, which is what he essentially did, literally
1: five people can bring his whole term to an end within minutes. It's not enough. It's interesting how it goes back to this idea of myth, the myth of the government can't do anything. I mean, they lean very heavily into that. You know, I mean, there's this is like we that's not what we're here to do. Um, In fact, we want to do less. You know, I mean, it really is. You know, it's it's I have to say, part, it's I mean, I would I would say part of it also, this was true of
5: Speaker John Boehner, who since he was speaker, uh, has kind of really castigated the Republicans of his time. He's called Jim Jordan, a legislative terrorist. And he wrote a whole memoir basically saying that was a bad path for the party. But Boehner, uh, and I'll connect it to McCarthy. He was often willing, usually willing to live with the Tea Party Republicans. He saw them as useful. For his politics he opened the doors to them he helped candidates win office and so then ultimately they kicked him out but he was living with kind of a caucus a party he helped create and mccarthy isn't that different mccarthy sat still during a lot of the Trump presidency, usually supportive of the president, he's worked with a lot of these Republicans over the years. In fact, in the lead up to this vote, he has been giving them again everything they wanted. So he shouldn't be so surprised. Uh, but nor can he separate himself. This is his party, and that's what he's dealing with, not some oh. you know foreign party.
1: Yeah, I I, I think it shows that we're going to have a um. It's just a difficult next two years. It's going to it's difficult to see what productive can come out of Congress. I mean, or the House of Representatives. And um, it, it's interesting, the contrast with the Democrats right now. I'll agree that they you know, the Democrats in disarray is like been a storyline for so long. We we all we think about, you know, they all supported uh, the candidate that I- essentially, I think, um, uh, Representative Pelosi approved of, which is uh, Representative uh, Jeffrey. So um, And that gets back
5: back to the myth of government, meaning that if you are a party that ultimately still believes in government, which the Democrats are, uh, you're going to invest in making sure government is functioning. And if you are a party that uh, doesn't believe in government and subscribes to real myths about government never working, you're much more willing to undo, unsettle, destabilize the ability of government to work. Because it still fits with your agenda. So I think that helps explain some of the asymmetry between the
1: parties. And, uh, you know, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see how this all rumbles up to a 2024 election. Julian E. Zelizer is professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. Dr. Zelizer is a CNN political analyst and NPR contributor and the author and editor of 24 books on U.S. political history. Really appreciate your research. I really appreciate um, this, all, all that you're doing. And I appreciate this new book, A Myth America, Historians Take On the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. Thank you so much, Julian, for joining us. Thanks for having me. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's show, we need your help keeping this show on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kerstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and this is the State of Belief.
3: I think it's time we
6: stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.